I have a confession. It's nothing serious. But I don't want you to think less of me because of it. Okay? I hate poetry. How many of you like poetry? The, the really smart people usually like poetry. I, I don't know if it's because I'm, maybe I'm too black and white. I don't know what it is, but I, I, I can never dissect all the cryptic meanings in the poem. I never understand maybe 10% of what they're saying, right? So this is part of my problem. I simply get bored trying to figure it out. Uh, but as I meditated on the text for this week that the Lord led me to preach, Matthew chapter 7, uh, my mind immediately ran to a famous poem uh, from an American poet, 20th century American poet. His name is Robert Frost. And as I say that name, many of you already know which poem uh, is in my mind. It's a poem entitled, The Road Not Taken. I presume that many of you are familiar with this famous poem. Frost writes, Frost writes two, two uh, roads diverge in a yellow wood, and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then I took the other, it having the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. And many of you will be familiar with these famous lines. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. I, I couldn't help, as Jesus talks about tonight uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, as He talks about the, the, the narrow gate and, and, and the small way and, and, and he talks about the wide and broad way that leads to destruction. I couldn't help but think of the paths that diverge, the two roads that diverge in the wood. I don't know anything about Robert Frost. I didn't take the time to, to look him up and read him. I don't know if he was a Christian or not, um, but I suspect maybe he had read uh, the Sermon on the Mount, which as many of you know, Matthew chapter 7 is the end of the most famous sermon ever preached. It is the Sermon on the Mount. He may have unconsciously plagiarized Jesus Christ um, because that's what this text is about. Jesus exhorts His hearers to take the road less traveled. It's always this way um, for... Really, the, the Old Testament Jew and the New Testament Christian, it's always this way for God's people. It's a narrow way. It's the small gate that leads to life. And Jesus Christ says, and I think it's important that we hear this, there are few who find it. There are few, God incarnate says, there are few who find it. So how many of you have read this great little book? It's on the book table. Any of you guys have read this, taken the opportunity to read this book? I think it's the biggest mover of the last eight and a half years that we've been here. We've, we may have gone through 700 to 1,000 of these, and, and these things just fly off the table. I've had more than one person tell me that this book was like a bomb going off in their life. A spiritual bomb going off in their life. As John Piper talks about, what it means to be a Christian as opposed to having the priorities of the world. Piper is right when he says the vast majority of mankind, including much of professed Christianity, is living their one very precious, very short, 
life in such a way that they are wasting it. Piper says, if you ask the vast majority of people what a life well spent looks like, you will get, by and large, this answer. And he catalogs this for us. He says, well, a life well spent would be to get a good education, to have a good husband, maybe a good wife, a couple of good kids, a good job making good money, a nice house, some good friends, great vacations, a fun, leisurely, well-funded retirement. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things, but there's something conspicuously missing there. Does anybody pick it up? God is missing. Jesus Christ is missing. And beloved, if you miss Jesus Christ, you've missed it all. We were created by Him and for Him. If we miss Him, we've missed it all. We've missed it all. Piper says, this is not a life well spent. It is a life wasted. Piper calls this kind of life a tragedy. If that's all your life is about, with those things that I read off that list, if that's all it's about, Piper says, it's not only wasted, it is a tragedy. If we don't live our life built around Jesus Christ and the words of Jesus Christ, this is a tragedy. Because Jesus is at worst wholly absent and at best He's peripheral. How many professed Christians do you know that Jesus is just, He's kind of like a spiritual mascot. He's kind of like a religious icon. He doesn't really impact the way I think, the way I hope, the way I dream, and ultimately the way I live. Again, John Piper is right. That is a wasted Life. Piper writes this, God created us to live with a single passion, to joyfully display His supreme excellence in all spheres of our life. The wasted life is the life without this passion. Most people slip by in life without this passion for God, spending their lives on trivial diversions, living for comfort and pleasure, squandering their days on bubbles that burst. I've always loved that line. I guess I read this book 15 years ago. I've never forgotten that line, bubbles that burst. How many people are spending their lives chasing bubbles that burst? It doesn't mean anything. Their goal, what they're, what they're chasing after. It's temporal. I love that imagery. Bubbles that burst. Piper goes on to say, the true disciple of Jesus Christ, he says, God in Jesus Christ has unleashed us from these small dreams. Don't you love that? We're free. We're free. We don't have to have the priorities of the world. We don't live for those small little things that unregenerate men live for. We don't pursue that anymore. That doesn't make our heart beat fast anymore. God and the things of God make our heart beat fast. As the song says, to give ourselves away to Jesus Christ. That makes our heart beat fast. That is how we choose to live. Beloved, have you been unleashed? I'll just stop and ask. Have you been unleashed? Are you still chasing bubbles that burst? Are you still on the road, that the, the broad road, the wide road, the road that everybody else is on? Or have you chosen the road less traveled? I believe this is part of what God is saying to us Tonight, which road are you on? Which road are you on? Do your ideas 
of a life well spent look more like the world's or do they look like the New Testament? Are you still living for the really small and very confining dreams of this fallen world system? Or are you progressively giving yourself away to Jesus Christ? Have you walked through the small gate? Are you on the narrow gate? Or, or on the narrow way? Or are you still on the broad way? The broad way. Chasing bubbles that burst. In the last few weeks, we've been saying that Jesus Christ has never called anybody to be religious. He's never called anybody to be a church member. What does Jesus say? When He calls someone to follow Him, what is it that He always says? He calls us to be disciples. We're called to be disciples. Discipleship is salvation. Salvation is discipleship. If we read the New Testament with integrity, we understand that. We understand that. There is no dichotomy here. There is no dichotomy. Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and make Baptists. Go into all the world and make Presbyterians. Go into all the world and make Anglicans. What did He say? Go into all the world and what? Make disciples. This is the commission. This is what we're supposed to do. This is who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be disciples making disciples. The, the, the call of Christ is nothing less than that. If our Christianity has devolved into simply being church attendance, this is not biblical Christianity at all. It's something far less than that. You know, it would be sub-biblical. It would be sub-Christian if our Christianity is simply showing up for church once a week. Real, authentic, genuine, biblical, born-again Christians are real, authentic, genuine disciples. They know Jesus. They love Jesus. They obey Jesus. And they walk with Jesus. They are sold out. Sold out. They bear fruit. They walk the road less traveled. So that brings me to the text here, verses 13 and 14. You heard it read earlier. I'm just going to reread it quickly here, these first two verses. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Here in verse 13, Jesus exhorts His hearers to do something. What is He exhorting us to do? He's exhorting us to enter in. To enter into the kingdom through the door. Who's the door? Who's the gate? He is. He tells us clearly in the Gospels. We are to enter in. Christianity has never been a passive endeavor. Real Christianity is not simply a noun. It is... Really more of a verb. Christianity has never been a spectator sport. It's a roll up your sleeves and go to work kind of proposition. Not that we're saved by our works. I want to keep saying that. I say that all the time. We're not saved by our works. We don't have to be a disciple to be saved. We have to be a disciple because we are. That is a profound statement. That is a profound statement. We don't have to become a disciple to be saved. We have to become a disciple because we are. We've met God 
And I dare you to stop me from being a disciple. I've met Christ. He's awesome. I love Him. I dare you to stop me from being a disciple. This is the passion. This is the kind of passion we see on the pages of Scripture. Jesus says, come on, wake up from your religious stupor and walk with Me. He says, enter by the narrow way, the road less traveled, no more small dreams, no more bubbles that burst. Go with Me. Go with the living God. I'm always amazed. <laughs> One, that modern Christianity can be lived so small uh, or even thought about in such small terms if we actually read our Bibles and comprehend them in, in, on any level. This cannot be a small thing. It cannot be a heart-dead, brain-dead uh, habit. You know, if it is, we really haven't understood it yet. We haven't really met Him yet. Jesus says, enter in. Enter in. It's really for men and women who will turn the world upside down. That's what biblical Christianity is. Men and women who love Him wholly and completely. And as that last song says, man, if you'll just go do what that last song says. Surrender. Holy. Have you? Have you surrendered wholly to Jesus? Beloved, this is always the call. It's always the call. This is never not. The Gospel call, the biblical call, it's never not the biblical call. Luke 13.24, you remember what Jesus said? He says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. Strive! Are you striving? Strive, He says. You know, many modern Gospel presentations, you would think becoming a Christian is as easy as falling down. Actually, if you read your Bible, you realize there's much more to it than that. Jesus says, strive to enter. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases that Luke 13.24 text. It says, uh, put your mind on on your life with God. The way to life and to God is vigorous. It requires your total attention. Let me ask you, does Christ have your total attention? In every sphere of your life, does He have your total attention? Again, or is He a spiritual mascot for you? Or an icon? Or is He real in your life? Does, it, does He matter every day in how you think and act and talk. You, go, you can't just fall into being a Christian. You either want to be one more than anything else or you're not one. I know that's strong. But you know, I preach strong. I just do. And some people don't come back. They don't like it. But I preach strong. Why? A couple of reasons. God's called me to preach the truth. I don't take the edges off. I just preach what I see on the page. And also, I hope you understand. Some of you understand, some of you don't. I preach this way because I love you. I mean, it would be easy for me to stand up here and do something simple and pretty and everyone would feel good and no one would be convicted, no one would be challenged, no one would examine their life. That would be easy for me to do. But I fear God too much, <laughs> for one. And I, I just want to say I love you too much to do that. I love you too much to do that. Beloved, are you vigorous in your pursuit of Jesus Christ? Discipleship is not the prerequisite to salvation. Discipleship is the consequence of salvation. Just like in Frost's poem, life offers two ways. 
the broad way or the narrow way. You know, there's no middle place. There's no middle place. There's never been a middle place with God. Never. Never been a middle place with God. Jesus is saying the same thing that Frost has said. There are two gates. There are two ways. One is wide. One is broad. It is traveled by the multitudes. The other is small. It is narrow. And there are few who find it. Jesus says. There are few who find it. Of course, Jesus is talking about the road to heaven and the road to hell. The broad way, the easy way, the popular way, the normal way, the fashionable way, the politically correct way is the way of natural man. We understand that. It's the way of the world. It's all the man-made, man-centered religions, philosophies, values, ideals, beliefs, and culture, including pseudo-Christianity. Jesus says, those, all, of those, all of those things lead to destruction. Again, this is a God who speaks to us like we're grown-ups. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't treat us like little children. He speaks straight to us. And I love that. I love that about Him. Proverbs 16.25, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That is the broad road. That is the road that mankind loves to travel. That is the way of the world. But Jesus has said it clearly for all the world to hear and understand. I am the only way to the Father. I am the only way. He is blunt about this. Jesus says there are few who find this narrow way. It's not for everyone who merely says, I, I believe in God. It's not for everyone who merely says, uh, who is merely religious and attends church. It's not for everyone who merely prays a prayer and gets baptized. It's for those who follow Him. And we're going to see that as we progress through the text. It's for those who enter by the narrow gate. Secondly, in the text, Jesus gives two warnings. First, about false prophets and their ways. Two warnings. Verses 15-20. to 20. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. In the context here, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who had taken the truth of the Word of God and twisted it into a mechanism to put their self-righteousness on display and their self-justification. You know, so what men do, men take the Word of God, quite often they take the Word of God and they twist it. They distort it. They turn it into something that it is not. This is what the Pharisees have done. And Jesus is talking about them here. You may remember in Matthew 23, Jesus blasted these guys. Okay, now listen. This is why I use religion as a pejorative term or a, a negative term. Jesus blasted these guys. These are the most religious people who probably ever walked the planet. If you've studied uh, the Pharisees, these guys, it's unbelievable. They had 600 laws they kept every day. 
And they would tell you about it if you'd ask them. I mean, these guys, these guys were, it's, it's astonishing down to the, the, the detail of, of the law that they followed in their daily lives. Jesus blasted them. You may remember Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, which means cursed uh, be you or damned be you. Woe to you, you are blind guides and hypocrites. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Your performance-based religion, it's all a pretense. You've neglected the spirit and the heart of the law. You are whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. He says, you're serpents. How can you avoid the sentence of hell? This is what Jesus says to religious people. Christianity is not religion. You've heard me say it a, a million times. It's a relationship. It's a relationship. This is why God condemns religion. He doesn't want anybody trying to come uh, to Him through religion. He wants those who will repent and believe to come to Him through Christ. It's the only way, beloved. It's the only sanctioned way. The only God-sanctioned way to come to Him. These were the false prophets of Jesus' Jesus's day. False prophets have always plagued God's people. You see it in the Old Testament. You see it in the New Testament. And of course, in these last days, they have only multiplied. False prophets have only multiplied in these last days. Counterfeit prophets, priests, preachers, and teachers are everywhere. Everywhere. There are false expressions of Christianity on almost every corner, at least in America. I don't know what it's like where you're from. Um, false expressions. Non-biblical expressions of Christianity. I, I think I've said this to you before recently, but I couldn't help but thinking of it again. I, when I walk into my average Christian bookstore in the States and, and I see these false teachers smiling down at me from the bestseller list. And it grieves me that this is called a Christian bookstore. Um, but so it is. So it is in these last days. Jesus says you'll know their fruit. You'll know these guys by their fruit. I like what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2. He says these guys are stains. They're blemishes. They, they revel in their deceptions. They are springs without water. They, they are trained in greed. Jude, chapter, or pardon me, Jude verse 12 says these, these guys are hidden reefs in the church. They're clouds without water. They're autumn trees without fruit. That's what Jesus says. They have no real spiritual fruit. You'll know them because uh, by their fruits. And of course, this also applies not simply to false teachers, but also to false Christians. Those of you who are familiar with the Gospel of John, you know that, that, that Jesus condemns uh, the false disciple Judas. He, he sends Judas out. Judas has made up his mind and Jesus dispenses and, with Judas and sends him out. And then he goes into that discourse about the, the, the branch that doesn't bear fruit. And Jesus says they'll be cut off. It's the false branch. They will be cut off. Again, this analogy here about fruit and good trees, it is elsewhere in the Scriptures. And Jesus gives a second warning. The first was about false prophets. The second is about false professors. Or we, we can say false disciples. False Christians. Listen to what he says. These are, famous, these are famous words. I'm sure if you've been a Christian very long or been around the church much, you've heard these words. 
Some of the strongest words that Jesus has ever spoken. Verse 21, Not everyone who says, uh, says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. Now wait a minute. I thought all you had to do was pray a prayer. I thought all you had to do was profess to be a Christian. I thought it just, whatever, you know, you just say it. And it's magic. And it happens. You're a Christian, right? You just say it. Jesus says, well, if we actually read what God says, if we actually read the words, He says, not everyone who says it is. Again, this is God speaking. Verse 22, Many will say to Me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name and in Your name cast out demons and in Your name perform many miracles? I don't remember the date of my first sermon. It was sometime in the mid-80s when I felt called to begin preaching. I don't remember the date, but I remember the text. It was this text. Because I grew up and I got to preach in my home church. And I grew up in a church that was very weak scripturally, uh, biblically speaking. And they were great at creating, at creating um, church members. We were good at that. If you wanted to be a church member, we'll sign you up. Just parrot this prayer and we'll throw you in the baptistry. That's what we did. We were really good. This denomination was really good at this. Unfortunately, we didn't make very many disciples. There weren't many disciples coming, <laughs> coming out of this church. A lot of people talking, but not very many people living the Word. It's as C.S. Lewis calls it, it's the imaginary conversion, which is, again, epidemic in much of the modern church. It was a, lo it was a labor of love for me to preach this text to uh, the 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 people that I grew up with. It was a labor of love because I knew many of them needed to hear this. I needed to hear this before. Hey, I grew up in the church. I've told, told you, some, some of you know this story. I grew up in the church and I did the obligatory baptism when I was eight. When you're eight, you're supposed to be baptized, you know, but I was converted when I was 28. And man, I, I knew what it was like to play religion. I'd done it from eight to 28. I know what I'm talking about. I'm not standing up here saying that I've never experienced this. I lived this for 20 years. I was a religious man. I wouldn't have, if push came to shove, I wouldn't have given you five dollars for Jesus. I mean, if the pressure had ever come, it didn't. He didn't mean anything to me. But when I was converted, it was my great joy to preach this text to those people that I cared for so much. It was a labor of love for me. Jesus is warning the religiously deceived. He's warning the religious. Not merely religious in a generic sense, but religious in, we could say, a Christian sense. A Christian sense. This is not about Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims and other false religions. It's about people who think they're Christians. That's what the text is about. This is a, a, a warning to to, to all who would have the ears to hear. Jesus is warning those who think they're Christians. That's the substance of the text, beloved. They not only think they're Christians, they think they're awesome Christians. Do you read the text? They think they've got an awesome resume. Look, what do they do? They prophesy in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They perform many miracles in the name of Jesus. That's better than your list, I bet. 
It's better than mine. He's talking to people who are deceived. And deception is epidemic. It has always been epidemic. The adversary always comes in with some pseudo, false, fake, sham gospel. He is the great counterfeiter. And Jesus says in verse 22, many, many are deceived. Many say they're Christians, but they're not. Beloved, this is an important message for us. This is an important message for us to be able to share with our friends and with our family. I think we need to have integrity with what God says here. So how do we understand this? They were doing these great works. How do we understand this? I think it's easy to understand. These are not works truly in the name of Jesus. These are counterfeit works. We know that Satan is the great counterfeiter. Satan cloaks himself in pseudo-Christianity. We know that um, false or counterfeited, uh, counterfeited Christianity has plagued the church since the first century. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Holy Spirit talks about the false apostles and deceitful workers. 1 Corinthians 11.14 talks about the fact that Satan disguises himself even as an angel of light. So if we're biblically literate, we understand these Things. You know, I was talking to someone earlier, you know that much of the New Testament was written to refute false teaching. <laughs> if there weren't so many false teachers, some of the, uh, probably two-thirds of the New Testament wouldn't have needed to be written, but the church has always been under attack by Satan through his false teachers. So I, in actuality, these great works listed here in in uh, verse 22, have nothing to do with Jesus. They are counterfeit. They are counterfeit. Have you ever noticed when you ask people sometimes, and I know some people use this as a, uh, an evangelistic tool, you say, well, why should God let you into His heaven? Have you ever used this? I know some people use this. I don't use it much. You know, if you're evangelizing, why, why should God let you into His heaven? You know, what you hear most often is, well, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. You know, I pay my taxes, I mow my grass, I don't kick the, the cat, I take care of the kids. I'm, I'm pretty good. Well, I know I'm not as bad as him. I mean, this is what you start to hear. I think I'm, I've done more good than I've done bad. Right? And then you'll hear stuff like, well, I'm a Baptist. Or, I'm a, I'm a Catholic. Or, I'm a this, I'm a that. You already know what I'm going to say. <laughs> God could care less. That's not the basis upon which anyone will be saved. That's not the basis upon which any of us will be saved. These guys are showing up with their impressive religious uh, resumes and Jesus says, I don't know who you are. Verse 23. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Hey, if you think you're going to show up at the judgment seat and say, I'm not so bad. 
I was a Baptist. If that's the best you got, Jesus is going to say, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's lawlessness. False pseudo-Christianity is lawlessness, beloved. It's lawlessness. Really, to the highest degree, it's lawlessness. It mocks everything God says in His Word. It mocks the cross. It mocks the incarnation. To think that you could be saved because you're good. <laughs> it mocks everything He's done. It mocks His revelation. It is lawlessness to come before God with some trumped-up religious resume. You better come to God in Christ Jesus. You better come to God and I better come to God in Christ Jesus. I like what MacArthur says about this. John MacArthur, famous preacher in the States, he says, all this world's religions are based on human accomplishment. Biblical Christianity alone is based on what? Divine accomplishment. It's what Jesus, it's what Jesus has done. The key to the text is verse 23. The key word is there, no. Right? I didn't know you. I didn't know you. We know how the word know is used in, in Scripture. It's not simply cogn being cognitive of someone. There's this intimacy implied in, scriptural, in Scripture about the word know, particularly in this context. It's not that Jesus knew you existed and He knew your name. He knew you! And you knew Him. This is always, this is always the litmus test for biblical Christianity. And I love this. No other belief system in the world talks like this. No other belief system in the world talks like this. That our great Creator God redeemed us and I know Him. I'm in relationship with Him. No other faith or belief system talks like this. And this is where it makes me crazy sometimes. How could we be lukewarm about this? How could we live this small? No peoples on the planet can speak like we can speak. We know our God. It's not theoretical. It's not academic. We know Him. This is why God hates lukewarm religion. You know why? Because you can't know Him and be lukewarm. If you're lukewarm, you don't know Him, is what the text is actually. I mean, He's going to spit you out of His mouth. He'll not have it. You can't know Jehovah God and be lukewarm. You, it's impossible. Impossible. It's impossible. It is not possible to know Him and be lukewarm about it. It's just simply not possible. We know what Jesus says. I've shared this text with you many times. John 17.3 This is eternal life that they may know Thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. This is the crux of the Gospel. People say, Jim, how do you just boil down the Gospel? I always go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. You can use this if you like. You may not like it. I like it. It's very simple. Jesus says, 
I, I, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. My sheep hear my voice. My sheep follow me. That's Christianity. You know, I, I, there's a whole lot of things we could say on the periphery, but at the, at, at the end of the day, it's about the relationship. It is about the relationship. Lastly, Jesus closes the best sermon ever preached with an illustration. He closes, uh, he contrasts the true disciple um, uh, over against the false disciple. Verses 24 to 27, let's look at this very quickly. Therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against the house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain descended and the floods came and winds blew and burst against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Okay, now audience participation from verse 24. What does Jesus say the real disciple will do with his word? Someone tell me. Act. We act on it. It moves us. It stirs us. He moves us. He stirs us. Yeah, I dare you to stop me from following Him. I dare you to stop me. You can't stop. A true believer. I love what one guy said in seminary. He said, he said man, you don't have to manipulate somebody to, to receive Christ. If they catch a glimpse of Christ, they're coming. I mean, even if you point a, a, a machine gun at them, they're coming. That's how it is. That's how it is for someone who's caught a glimpse of Jesus. So, verse 26, someone tell me, what does Jesus say about the false disciple? What will he do with the Word of God? He will do nothing with it. Nothing. He does nothing. He hears it. He talks about it. But he doesn't do anything with it. He's the Judas branch. He's the branch that bears no fruit. He is the branch that will be removed. As John 15 says, and will be cast into the fire. You guys, you know how James talks about this. James talks about this at length. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases James 2.17. I've always loved this. This is like, I think this is probably the best paraphrase in, in Peterson's uh, work. James 2.17, he says, Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? You know what? If we read this, if we have any understanding at all, we understand Eugene Peterson is right. God talk without God acts, it's outrageous nonsense. It's outrageous nonsense. I've always loved that. I just thought that was, that was perfect. So, we are Bible-believing Christians in here. We profess to be that. And we don't preach salvation by works, so I don't want you to hear me saying that. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. We aren't saved because we build upon Christ in His Word. We build upon Christ in His Word because we are saved. And when the storm comes, and in the context here, uh, it's my opinion that we're talking about final judgment. When the final storm comes, and even temporal storms, you can use it uh, you can use that in the text here too. When it comes, we stand. Why do we stand? Because I have a great religious resume. What does it say? Why do we stand? Because we built on the rock. What's His name? Jesus Christ is His name. 
If God ever asks you, and I don't think He will, but if in case He does, why should I let you into my heaven? You know what to say. Jesus! That's why! Don't... Yeah, pull out your resume. Don't. Don't do that. It's bad. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my rock. Jesus Christ. Stand on Christ. And when the storm of judgment befalls creation, we will stand. We will not be blown over. We will not be blown away. We will stand there happily confessing the sufficiency of Christ. As every knee bows and every tongue confesses. You've got to love how simple Jesus boils all this down, right? All of life, all of eternity, right here. Two gates, two ways, two trees, two fruits, two choices, two destinies. All in 15 verses. All of time and eternity right there for anyone who has the ears to hear. One way is broad and wide. Most of humanity is on that road. The other way is small and narrow. And God Himself says there are few who find it. So Jesus has invited men to walk with Him. No more chasing bubbles that burst. No more small dreams. No more small lives. This is an invitation to the first John kind of life that we've been talking about these last months. It's sold out, fruit-bearing, narrow way, discipleship. So, I will close with just a simple question. Which road are you on? Which road are you on? Let's pray together. Awesome God, awesome Creator incarnate, crucified, risen, reigning. God, thank You. Thank You that You are our confession. Thank You that we are completely, wholly, and utterly secure in who You are and what You've done. It's not about religion. It's not about denomination. It's not about dogma. It's not about sacraments. It's not about ordinances. It's simply about You. And I love it, Lord, that You've come for us as a good shepherd, as the beautiful shepherd. You've come for us. You've called us to Yourself. We hear Your voice and we follow You. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for this warning. There may be some of us in here that have either been deceived ourselves or we have friends or family that may be deceived who are trusting in their religion, trusting in their works. And we need to be able to say, it's not about that. It's about knowing Christ. This is eternal life that we may know You. So Lord, I pray that each of us in this place would endeavor to know You more and more and more and more as we give ourselves to the study of Your Word, as we give ourselves in obedience to You, as we sang earlier, as we surrender all that we have and all that we are to Your Lordship. We love You, great God. We love You. We praise You. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.